Well, uh, Acts 17, 16 to 34. That's where we're at, as I said. So uh, before we get into the passage, and it's going to be uh, it's going to be a good one. I, I've I've been looking forward to this passage for a while. It's one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. Um, but before we get into it, I think we need to r- just remind ourselves again of a couple of fundamental biblical truths that the scriptures teach. And and I'm going to spend a little time on the front end to, to kind of frame this, and then we'll look at the passage. Um, but the Bible teaches us two fundamental truths about humanity, about us, uh, and they're both found in the book of Genesis, which is where most of the foundational things are. And in chapter two of Genesis, we learn that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. And that is a very important thing to keep in mind, that we are made by God uniquely and distinctly uh, in his image, to bear his likeness, to resemble him as, as, a, uh, as his created uh, human beings. And that sets us apart from all the other things that God has made. While he loves all that he made and is, great and, and is declaring them to be good, human beings are the only thing, uh, the only creation that God has marked with his image. And I, I say that because uh, we need to remember that among other things that, that the image of God means, one of the most fundamental things it teaches us is that every human being has a longing in our hearts for God. We all sense in us, whether we're religious or irreligious, Christian or atheist, whatever it is, we all know that there is a, a meaning and significance in our hearts that we are missing and needing to fill up with something. And that, that emptiness is meant to be filled with the Lord Jesus as, as becoming image bearers of God draws us to our creator and our savior. And, and this is not a new concept. This is something that in the 1600s, a, a French philosopher named Blaise Pascal pointed out, and I won't get into all the all the arguments that he makes, but essentially his point is this, that every human heart needs to be filled with an infinite and immutable or unchangeable object, in other words, by God himself. And others have, have paraphrased Pascal's uh, co- comment there as saying that every human being has a God-shaped hole that only he can fill in their hearts. And, and that's, that's a reality we need to recognize if we're going to grasp what's happening in the passage in front of us is that there is a longing in the human heart for God. And yet the second thing we need to recognize is what Genesis 3 teaches us, which is that humanity is sinful. Or another way to say it is we're rebellious against God. And so because of that, we are prone and in fact drawn to fill that that need for significance and for meaning and for God. And we try to fill that up with all the other things. And we're searching for meaning and significance and all the rest outside of God. The Bible has a word for that. And the biblical word for that is idolatry. It is to take something that has been made in the created world and assign to it significance that only God should have in our lives. And that's, that's really the, the heart of what Acts 17, 16 to 34 gets us to. It shows us the depths of 
the human heart in trying to fill the, vo- the void, so to speak, with all these other false gods. Uh, John Calvin, a theologian from the 1500s, picks up on this and he writes that the human heart is an idol factory. It's a factory that just produces idols and, and create, tries to create meaning outside of God. I, and I, so I say all of that, that we are made in the image of God, which drives us towards some kind of meaning and explaining the world. And we're sinners, which drives us away from the Lord Jesus to, to find that meaning and that significance. And that's precisely what Paul encounters in this passage. So look at with me at verse 16. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. All right, so the Apostle Paul, just to recap where we're at, this is a story of Paul's journey uh, on his second missionary journey. And Pastor Chris took us through the first half of 17, where Paul and Silas and Timothy go to Thessalonica, and then they get run out of Thessalonica. So then they go down to Berea, and they're received a little better in Berea initially until the people from Thessalonica find them and come and hunt them down in Berea. And at that point, uh, the people handling the Apostle Paul, these, these people that are in charge of his safety, sweep him onto a boat, sail him down to Athens. And, uh, and Silas and Timothy are left in Berea to just, I guess, survive or something. I don't know why they didn't get on the boat, but Paul is apparently more important than them uh, or something. And so he gets on the boat, he gets to Athens, and now he's waiting for them to come to him at Athens. He's, he's like, my, my friends are left behind, and now he's just kind of hanging out in this beautiful ancient city of Athens in Greece, uh, one of the great cities of the world at that time, and uh, outside of Rome, one of the most significant cities uh, of the world at that time. And he's hanging out in Athens, and he's got nothing else to do than to just kind of walk around and observe what's going on in the city, right? Because there's no, this is 2,000 years ago, there's no texting Silas and going, hey, where are you at? Like, get on an airplane and come quick. He's just like completely in the dark about where his friends are. So he's going to make use of the time. And he's walking around the city and it says his spirit is provoked within him as he sees that the city was full of idols. So the thing that Paul recognized as he's walking through the city of Athens is just how much religiosity is there. He sees a temple over here, an altar over there, a statue over here. That, that word full of idols could be translated as saturated with idols. It's everywhere he looks, he's seeing false gods. And you're probably aware uh, to some degree of the Greek uh, world and the pantheon of gods that they had. You've probably heard of a guy named Zeus and Hercules and all these characters um, that, that are just kind of around, right? These are all gods that were fashioned and formed in the Greek uh, minds to explain why things are the way they are. Every god represented some other facet of life, whether that be uh, wealth or fertility or merchants or whatever, like they all had their God, like the sea had a God, the heavens had a God, the earth had gods. It was, it was all just trying to patch together the observations of the world, make sense of that by filling it up with idols. And so he is in this city 
and it says his spirit was provoked within him. Now that's important. This idea of being provoked could all, is, is an emotional response that the Apostle Paul is having to what he sees. He is deeply bothered, troubled. Some translators suggest it could be translated that he was angry within himself because of what he's seeing. That he's, he's got this emotional response to what he's observing in the city. And I think it's important for us to ask the question, why? Why is Paul provoked so much at what he sees in Athens? Has Paul, I mean, obviously we know Paul was Jewish originally, became a Christian, followed the Lord. He still maintained much of his Jewish identity at, at this point. Um, and so obviously the Jews are monotheists. They believe in one God. Historically, that's always been the case, except for most of their history where they embrace all these false gods from around them. Um, but they were supposed to be devoted to their one God, the God of heaven and earth. And so that was built into him. But is he just frustrated by the idols he sees because he's kind of sensitive or, or that, that he just needs a safe space to go and relax? And like, is that what's happening? No, I don't think so. I think that Paul knows deep in his, in his bones and because of the word of God, that, that idolatry does incredible damage to the human heart. And I think what's, what's being provoked in Paul is a, is a sadness and frustration at seeing what he's seeing because of what this idolatry is doing to the people in Athens. Let me give you just a quick flyover. I know we're spending a lot of time on this one verse, but this, is, this, I think, is going to set us up for understanding the rest of this. The, the Old Testament shows us a great amount of information about what idolatry does. Idolatry is not a neutral thing. It, it is an actively negative thing. It, it actually disrupts the way life is meant to be. And yet, because of sin, the human heart is always drawn to idols, to false gods, to something that we try to fill God's place with. And, and I'm going to just, let's just do a quick flyover of, of Old Testament teaching on the issue of idolatry because it's not explicit in this passage. Paul doesn't really go through the theology of idolatry here, but the Bible that he's working off of does, and we can get some groundwork so that we're on the same page. I'm going to take us to three passages as quickly as I can, uh, and then we'll, we'll see what the principle is in each of those. So the first passage, you don't have to turn here. I'll read it for us, but if you want, you can. Isaiah 44, 14 to 17. Here's what Isaiah writes. He says, the, he, which is the idolater he's talking about, he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong and among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and he warms himself. He kindles a fire. He bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol and falls down and worships it, he prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. 
Now, that passage is very insightful to help us understand something about idolatry. Idolatry is living in a delusion about how life works. Think about the picture that's being painted for us here. Uh, you, you have a tree, you cut down that tree, you use most of that tree for the things that trees are supposed to be used for, like fuel, heat, cooking, right? This was before natural gas and all those things, right? You, every, and a lot of you heat your homes with, with wood. God bless you. That's the proper way to use a tree. Now, we, we love our trees. We live in the Northwoods. We don't want to decimate the forest. So I'm going to say that to caveat this. Responsibly do this. We're not here to just destroy the earth and its resources. And everyone in this room agrees with that, I know. Uh, but I feel like it should be said. Uh, either way, we know the proper use of the resources. Cut, cut it down, use it for fuel, use it for heat, use it for warmth, all those things. That's right. What's wrong is taking the other half of that tree and carving it into a god and pretending, it, that, pretending that that god is going to help you. That's delusional. It's actually quite silly when we think about it, right? That's, and actually, that's the point that Isaiah is making, is how, how disconnected a person has to be, how delusional they have to be, to think that the same tree that they're heating their house with and cooking their bread with is also the God that's going to save them and deliver them. It's, it's frankly just dumb, right? And that's the point. And so it's actually showing us that by, by pursuing these things that God has made and then elevating them to a place that they cannot and should not be in our lives makes us lose our understanding of how the world is supposed to work. It's perfectly appropriate to use a tree for warmth and for food. It is not appropriate for us to use the same tree and make a God out of it. So it's delusion that it's bringing us into. Second passage, Habakkuk chapter 2, 18 to 20. I'm sure Habakkuk is your favorite book of the Bible, uh, but it's actually a really great book of the Bible. Uh, Habakkuk says this in chapter 2. He says, what profit or what use or what, you know, what good is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image. He says, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So the second point, this very quickly, Habakkuk shows us that living in idolatry is actively living in lies, falsehoods. This is the point he makes, that, uh, that there's no profit in an idol because it's an active teacher of lies. And so... Do we really want to live our lives actively living in lies? No, I don't think we do. And yet we do as we embrace idols. The third passage quickly here is Psalm 115, 4 to 8, which says their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. 
eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throats. Now here's the key phrase. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So let's not miss the point. The point of the first part of that passage is that all these idols, though they may be shaped and formed to look like they are a living thing, they're not a living thing. It's a stone that's been carved. It's a piece of wood that's been whittled into a shape. It's, it's not a real thing. They may have the appearance of mouths, but they can't speak. Ears, they can't actually hear. Now, the phrase here that those who make them become like them and so do all who trust in them is getting us to the point that the idols are dead things and ultimately spiritually so becomes the people who trust in them. When we trust in idols, we become spiritually dead people. This, this is the, these are the principles. Delusional living, lies, and spiritual death. So in light of that, and that's just a quick overview. There are many, many more passages in the Old Testament we could go to. Uh, but I think that should show us what we need to know to understand why Paul is provoked when he sees what he sees. He's provoked within him because of recognizing the culture in Athens, the people living there are living delusional lives, they're believing lies, and they're spiritually dead. And so what does he do? Well, he doesn't run away. He doesn't faint from just being so shocked and horrified at what he sees. He doesn't scorn or curse these people. He engages them. Look at verse 17. So he reasoned, so, okay, he's provoked, so, this is what he does. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So this is what Paul does. He reasons with the people he's engaging with and he begins as he always does in the synagogues. The synagogues are where the low-hanging fruit is. These are the people who don't need a lot of extra instruction. They've got the groundwork in their Old Testaments. And as Pastor Chris showed us last week very well in the first half of, that, of this passage, we see the model that, that Paul uses in Thessalonica and Berea to, to show the Jewish people from the scriptures what Jesus is, which is their Messiah. But in this passage, we see something new for, for Paul. We see that he doesn't just go to the synagogues on the Sabbath days. He spends the rest of his week in the marketplace, talking and reasoning with those who happened to be there. So he goes to the marketplace. He goes to the place where people are gathering to shop and to engage with each other and to give you know, their thoughts on things. This is the center place of the community. It's the place where people are. And again, they're, they're not living in a day where they can buy their stuff online. They're having to go day after day to the marketplace. And so that's where Paul goes. He goes every day to the market where the people are to engage with them. And, and he's willing to reason with them about what they're believing and, how, and the world that they're thinking about and how they're living that out. 
What we see in verse 18, if you want to read this with me, he says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So the, the message that Paul is reasoning and teaching through in the marketplace gets the attention of not just the common people, but also the elites in society as well. These philosophers, uh, the people who are the thought leaders. These, there's two groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. These are the two kind of main factions of Greek philosophy at this point in time. We don't need to get lost in the weeds on what the Epicureans and Stoics believed, but let's just very basically tell you that Epicureans didn't believe that the gods were involved in life at all. They just sort of detached themselves. And so the whole point is, while, you know, while the cat's away, the mouse will play. And so the Epicureans just lived it up. They're like, well, the gods aren't paying attention to us, so let's just have some fun. The Stoics took the opposite approach. That their, their approach was that the gods were paying attention and were going to make their lives miserable. And so let's just buckle down and be nice, good people. That's, that's a very simplified view of their, their positions, of course, but that's the, the, the essence of it. And so uh, these people, though, these were the predominant views. You had kind of the hedonistic people who were just going to live however they want and pursue pleasure uh, wherever it comes. And then you've got the, the more stoic people that are going to go, no, we got to hang in here because there's consequences to our actions and all that. And they start to engage with Paul. And they're hearing Paul say things that they'd not heard before. Some of the people were told, called him a babbler. A babbler is a, that, that word that gets translated into English as a babbler here is the Greek word that means, it's one word that can be translated literally as seed picker. And the idea is, for that word, is that you have a little bird on the side of the road just picking seeds off the ground. And they're going, Paul's just picking and choosing different ideas from different people. He doesn't have an original idea. He's just kind of, you know, yeah, just seed picking. Some people are like, yeah, so they're not impressed. Others believed he was a preacher of foreign divinities, gods, plural, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so they're, they're probably confused and thinking that Jesus is a God and the resurrection is a God. And he's preaching both of these gods as, a, as if they're separate divinities. Clearly, they're not understanding what he's saying. And so it says in verse 19, they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Luke gives us a little bit of background on, on the Athenian culture, which was addicted to novelty or new things. Kind of sounds like our day and age, doesn't it? They, they just wanted that new shiny thing. And so because Paul is saying things that are new to them, 
they invite him to come to the Areopagus, which is a, a gathering place for the elites and the civil authorities to kind of exchange ideas. And this is what they spent their time doing. They would just engage in anything new that they heard and they would love to hear it. So they invite Paul and they bring him to this place, this, this place that's set up on a hill. It's an amphitheater and they literally give him a stage to preach the gospel. And that's where we get into verse 22. And this is Paul's sermon or message to the Areopagus, these people that are in a position of authority, at least thought leaders in the community. And I'm going to read the longer section of Paul's whole talk so that we're not breaking it into little pieces. We'll get the whole argument in front of us and then I'll step back and kind of just walk through what we're hearing him saying. Verse 22 to 31. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To, an, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Okay, that's Paul's message. Beautiful speech. Paul goes through the, the fundamental things that these people need to hear. But notice that he starts by e expressing genuine, I think, gratitude for where the people in Athens are. He doesn't rip on them. He uses their religiosity. He says, in every way, you are very religious. Because he's passing along, he's watching the city, and he sees all these objects of worship, right? He, he's not ripping on them for that. He's utilizing this as a way to, to get his audience to hear what he has to say. And then he specifically goes to this very thing in the city, this altar that is inscribed with the words to an unknown God, 
what the Athenians were doing there was basically going, we don't know if we've covered all the bases with the gods. We don't know if we've figured it all out. So let's have one altar that's just to a God that we don't know about. And in case he comes down here, he won't be mad at us because we can point to it and go, this is yours, see? Um, So that's what he's seeing. And he recognizes this and uses it as the opportunity to tell them, you have a God that you don't know about. And he goes on to talk about that God. In verse 24, he explains that God is the creator of all. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. This was a distinct uh, difference from the Greek world and understanding of the gods. They believed that all these pantheon of gods had different roles to play, that they would make different parts of the world, that they had charge of different aspects of the world. And Paul's going, no, the true God, the God you don't know about but need to know is the God who made everything. He's the creator of all. He's not a local deity who just made some aspects of the world. He is the God of everyone. He goes on to say that God is the sustainer of all. He explains that God is not living in temples made by people. He doesn't need to be served by human beings. And that was different because the Greeks had temple servants in every temple to every God. There were people employed to take care of that God which seems like a really easy gig when the God's a fake God, right? I mean, what are they doing? But they're doing bad things. Um, th- this, is, this is what Paul is saying, that the God of, the true God is not a God that needs to be served by us because he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. His point is, is that God is the sustainer of all, that we don't care for God, he cares for us. The Athenians have it backwards, They think that they've got to take care of the gods so that they don't get angry. And Paul's going, no, God takes care of you. He's the one who gives you life. He's the one who gives you breath in your lungs. He's the one who gives everything to you. He then goes on to say in verse 26 that God is the ruler of all. That God is the one who determines where we live, when we live, how long we live, All of these things are fixed by God, determined by God. He says in verse 26, he made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He's saying that where you live and when you live is determined by God. And we know that intuitively because none of us chose who were our parents None of us chose where we were born and where we lived as at the beginning of our lives, at least until we were at a point where we could make some of those decisions. But even that is directed by God's leading and guiding. And that God did all of this so that we would seek him, feel our way toward him and find him because he's not far from each one of us. So God is the ruler of all and he directs our lives in such a way that we would find him. Then he says in verse 27 and 28 that God is the father of all, that everything on earth and all of us come from God as as his offspring. What Paul does here is he actually quotes in verse 28 two different poets of the Greeks. 
So he actually goes outside of sacred scripture to make his point here. He's not quoting for this audience the Bible. They don't embrace the Bible as an authoritative document. And so Paul's going to make the connections that they need to see by appealing to their own poets. And he says, he quotes one poem um, from Epimendes of Crete, who says, in him, we live and move and have our being. Now, what Epimendes meant by in him was Zeus. <laughs> but, but Paul is able to appropriate that and reappropriate that and say, no, 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 it's not Zeus. But, he was, but this Epimendes guy was onto something. He was close. He wasn't all the way there. But this God that I'm telling you about, that's who is actually the one in whom, in whom we live and move and have our being. And then he says, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now that's from Aratus's poem. And uh, Aratus is making again the claim that in Zeus we live and move, or we are his offspring. We are Zeus's offspring. And once again, Paul says, no, it's, it's this God I'm telling you about. Being then, verse 29, God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He's saying we are God's offspring, but it's not Zeus that we come from. It's this God that we can't form and shape in our own image. Zeus is an image that is made in the form of man and he looks like an old grumpy dude with a big beard, right? And they, they made him look like that because that's how they perceived of him. And Paul's going, it's not like that. We don't define God. God defines us. We are made in his image. We don't make him into our image. And in verse 30 and 31, as he wraps it up, he makes the point that God is the judge of all. He says that the times of ignorance, God overlooked. God was patient with the pagan people. He didn't, unlike many of the gods of the Greek world, didn't throw lightning bolts at people because he was angry at them. He overlooked their ignorance. But now, now that Jesus has come, died and rose again from the dead, now God commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day, determined a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. The point is that we must come to this God and leave all the false gods behind and come to the true God because there will be a day of judgment. But now look at what Paul means by judgment. He says, judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him, this man, from the dead. The point that Paul's making is, is that there will come a day of judgment. But the judgment by which we will be judged is what we do with Jesus. This man that God crucified and raised from the dead what we do with him is the crucial point that we'll be judged by. We're not living in a world where there are scales that are weighing the goods and the bads that we do. That is not Christian doctrine. Christian theology, biblical truth, isn't this weighing out of the balances and if you do more good than bad, you're fine. 
It is all or nothing. It is Jesus or lost. It is Jesus or judgment. That is it. And that's what Paul makes the claim here. We either embrace this God who is raised from the dead, who is crucified for sinners and then risen again, or we don't. And by that we will be judged. So we're called to repent and come to Jesus. What a killer sermon. But look at how it's responded to. Verse 32 through 34. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite. So there's a guy who is a part of the, uh, th- this council, this group of philosophers. Dionysius, he joins Paul. And a woman named Demarius and others with them. We don't know anything about Demarius, but her name, the fact that she's named probably indicates that she was a prominent lady in the, in the city of Athens. And then an unknown number of others joined them. We get a sense that Paul's, um, Paul's preaching didn't yield a, a huge amount of conversion in this moment, but there were some. It wasn't a total loss, but many of the people either mocked the message, specifically when they heard about the resurrection. And others said, we will hear you again about this, which is just another way of saying, we don't want this. We're too polite to make fun of you, but maybe we'll just kick the can down the road. What you're seeing is the response of mockery from some, delay from others, and belief from others. Paul is nonetheless faithfully teaching what these people needed to hear to come to faith in Christ. And what we're, gi- what we're given here is probably an overview of his sermon or a, a, you know, kind of a summary of his sermon. We don't know to what degree he, he dug into these things on a deeper level. We're probably not reading a direct manuscript of every word that came out of his mouth, but the, the overview of his points Some people have criticized Paul because of this passage. He never mentions the name of Jesus. He never talks about the cross. And so some people have said, Paul didn't preach the gospel here. Well, I think that that's kind of dumb, frankly. He did preach the gospel. We just don't have every last word he said, and he got to the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, but let's let's think about this passage and what it's drawing us to, and particularly the issue of idolatry. What about our time? It's easy to read a passage like this and go, well, that's a problem from that, that, that time, 2,000 years ago. Yeah, those primitive people were kind of goofy and they had their statues. We probably don't see a lot of this like in front of our faces in our culture today. But that doesn't mean idolatry is not a problem. John Stott, who was a British pastor um, and passed away, I think, in 2011, but he wrote very helpfully here. He says this, that idols are not limited to primitive societies. There are many sophisticated idols too. An idol is a God substitute. 
Any person or thing that occupies the place which God should occupy is an idol. Covetousness is idolatry. Ideologies can be idolatries. So can fame, wealth, and power. Sex, food, alcohol, and other drugs. Parents, partner, children, and friends. Work, recreation, entertainment, possessions, even church, religion, and Christian service. I think that's really helpful. I think that the point that Stott's making and what I want to drive home today is that idolatry is a problem as much today as ever. It may be more subtle in some of the ways that it comes across, which may actually make it more difficult for us to see it in ourselves or in others. It may not be a carving of stone, but it's placing anything above Jesus in your life. Let's get, let's get practical and talk about some, some things that are common. We, we can make people like our spouses or our kids or our friends into idols by elevating the importance of them into, in our lives and putting them above Jesus and falling apart at the seams if somebody doesn't live up to our expectations because we're elevating them above what they ought to be. And one, it's not right for us to do that and replace God in that regard. It's also totally unfair to the people we're elevating into that status because who can live up to that? We, We can make those certain people into idols if we're not guarding our hearts. We can make our political ideologies into idols And one of the ways to assess that, because it's not wrong to have political views, it's not wrong to believe the country should go in a certain direction, but if we would rather people know our politics than know our Jesus, we've probably crossed a line. Actually, haven't probably, absolutely have crossed a line. We We need to be mindful, especially this year, now that it's all coming back around, sadly, um, that this is, this is the thing. We can elevate ideas and thoughts above Jesus. We need to guard our hearts against that. The obvious things are money and possessions, right? The, taking these, these material things and elevating those and believing that those things are going to make us happy. And of course, they never do. We know that. We've been down that, that hamster wheel enough to know that, but here we are. Or going on Facebook or Instagram and seeing that quote-unquote friend of yours who went on a vacation, posted all their pictures, and you think, why can't I have that? That's the definition of being covetous and is the definition of idolatry, according to the Apostle Paul. It's very subtle. What you don't see about your friend's vacation is how they had to wait five hours for their rental car and their kid threw up in the back of it and all those things. You don't see that. But, you know, you see the the sunset and you think, whoa, I want that. The sun's outside your house too. Go look at it. We could go on, right? But all those things are false hopes, false dreams. And Jesus calls us to him, who is the only one who can truly satisfy us. So as we think about this, I think it's easy for us to to kind of cast the idea of idolatry onto others and not look at it within ourselves. 
And I'll tell you, I've, I've had to be confronted in my own heart with this and the idol that just keeps popping up in my life that has to keep being cast down to the ground is the idol of comfort. I get really agitated when things aren't going the way that makes me comfortable. You might feel that too, but that's the thing that just keeps popping up and I'm going, why am I so mad about whatever, this life I'm living or whatever it is? It's because, oh, I'm, I'm putting this thing ahead of Jesus in my life and he doesn't call me to comfort, he calls me to trust in him. When Jesus describes himself to his disciples as the way, the truth, and the life, he is getting, he's cutting to the very heart of what idolatry promises but fails to deliver. When Jesus says that he's the way, he means that he is the path by which we walk to, to get to the Father and to make sense of all of this life. Idols are a delusion of how life is supposed to work. Jesus is truly the way that life is supposed to work. When Jesus says that he's the truth, it means that he is cutting through the lies of all the false promises of this world in our hearts and showing us that he is the one that makes sense of our reality. When he says that he is the life, he means that he is the only way by which we will truly come alive again. C.S. Lewis said it beautifully, of course. In the words of Mere Christianity, the last sentence or two of Mere Christianity, he writes this, Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look to Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. We need to come to this God, the God revealed to us through Jesus Christ, the God who loves us too much to let us wallow in our idolatry, who came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross in the place of sinners and rose again to truly give us the life he promised us. And we must go to him again. We must return to him and keep returning to him. And every time those idols pop up, whatever they may be, we cast them down by the help of the Spirit and we go back to Jesus. And in that way, we truly live. And I hope that you're on that path with me and I, I hope that we can help each other along that way. And that as God gives us opportunity to point those things, to those, point those things out to those who are lost and trusting in other things. That's what Paul does. That's what we're called to do. But it starts here and then it works out. All right, let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness, for the salvation you've given us through your, through your life, death, and resurrection. And I pray, God, in this moment that we would be given the grace of seeing those areas in our lives, each of us individually, where we don't trust you or we believe we can get something better from somewhere else. And would you help us to see it, turn from it, and come to you. We pray now that as we take this, this, these few moments ahead of us to sing to you, to get up and partake of the Lord's Supper, that we would be reminded again of who you are, of what you've done, 
of that your death on the cross is our way into true life. And would you help us as believers to go to the table with a heart of joy and gratitude for the work that you've done, that we would eat and drink in your memory because it is the only hope we have. And we pray you would give us the grace to do that today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.